Hi everyone and welcome back to A Culture Story. Today, my guest is Greg. Greg is an author, speaker, singer-songwriter, and Christian worship leader. There are so many gems of wisdom, humor, and truths in this episode. Greg's strong Christian faith comes through in his sharing, and I appreciate that he is authentic and vulnerable with it. If I were to title this episode, it would be, The Meaning Resides in the Mind of the Receiver, Not in the Message Itself. Listen in. Greg, welcome to A Culture Story. Hey, thanks for having me, Megan. Thanks for being here. Greg, to begin, what would you like listeners to know about you? Well, let's see. I grew up in Indonesia, so that seems relevant to our current conversation. My family moved there when I was three years old, and then I moved back for college. Uh, I did my undergrad degree in Rochester, New York, uh, and then I worked for a church for a year, and then I went to grad school in central Pennsylvania, uh, studied English and specifically rhetorical theory, which is like the philosophy of how language works in the world. I uh, got my PhD in English a couple of years ago, and I am also the author of two books, the most recent of which came out like a month or so ago and is called No Longer Strangers, Finding Belonging in a World of Alienation. And one of the fun things about that book is that I got to tell a bunch of stories from my childhood in Indonesia. So I was, I was a big fan for that reason, among others. Yes, absolutely, Greg. Um, <laughs> and Partly, I mean, this is why I reached out to you because you have so many stories and I am so eager to know which one you're going to share with us today. Um, Greg and I, we were at the same conference, I realized a couple of years ago, but we never crossed paths there. Um, but I recently read his book, No Longer Strangers, and figured, you know what, I need to, I need to reach out to him. I need to have a conversation. I need to know what story he would say on a culture stories. So, Greg, what story will you share with us today? So I think I want to tell the Poostics story. Uh, the story. The story goes as follows. When we were kids growing up, my dad would read to us out of A.A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh books. And he usually, he usually read these to us while we were going to bed, which means that we were not remotely tired. So we're lying in bed like raring to go. My dad, meanwhile, is sitting on the floor and like falling asleep as he reads and his voice just getting slower and slower. Anyway, we picked up a lot of great things from reading Winnie the Pooh. And one of them was this game that Winnie the Pooh and his friends would play called Poo Sticks, which is where they would be in the hundred acre wood and they would find, uh, they would each find a stick and they would go out on the bridge and drop their stick into the river and then see whose stick would get to the other side of the bridge first as it, as it floated in the river. So my brother John and I really wanted to play this Poo Sticks game, but we didn't have like a river handy on our street. Uh, what we did have on our nice little street in Bandung, Indonesia, uh, we had an open sewer. Uh, and, and so we would use the open sewer. And we also didn't have like lots of sticks lying around on our street, but we did have lots of pieces of trash lying around. So we would take the pieces of trash 
and drop them into the open sewer and they would run along a course that ran it ran underneath our driveway once and then underneath the street before it eventually emerged over by the SMP, the middle school and uh, so we would so we would follow our trash along and see whose trash would get to the middle school first and that and that person would win uh, and so we developed a whole art around this game around figuring out which pieces of trash would be most effective and where exactly in the sewer you wanted to drop it to get the best current and all those sorts of things and so we developed this game that in retrospect, now that I live in a place that doesn't have open sewers, seems a little bit strange to me. And yet I still remember it with the utmost fondness as like this quintessential childhood activity. Like, of course, you invite your friends over and you're like, you know what we should do? We should all go play poo sticks in the open sewer. Uh, so, so that was a, a game from my childhood that I remember with great fondness. <laughs> Yes. Um, so why did you choose this story, Greg? I think one of the things that I really like about this story is that it reminds me that there is beauty to be found in things that we don't necessarily naturally think of as beautiful or in things that the people around us tell us we should not think of as beautiful. Certainly, I remember when I was growing up that some of the some of the Westerners I knew who also lived in Indonesia would look at the open sewers that we had in my city as something that should be seen as lesser, uh, as, as something to, to sort of bemoan and be like, oh, you know, they, and I'm sure they had legitimate concerns about public health and that sort of thing, you know, and I, I don't want to discount those things. But I think for me as a childhood, there was a sort of wonder and delight to be found in saying like, hey, I'm not going to change whether or not I have open sewers, but I do get to decide whether I want to bemoan them or whether I want to seize upon them as an opportunity to play a really fascinating game of poo sticks. Because to be honest with you, for those of you future poo sticks players out there, I will say, I'm sure a nice like a nice river with no trash in it, no like wires and sticks and literal, you know, bits of poo floating through it. It may be a more idyllic place to play your poo sticks game, but the open sewer offers a certain kind of distinctive course like it's it makes for a very exciting poo sticks game if you have an open sewer available. And I think the opportunity as a child to seize upon uh, a chance to think of the open sewer not as something to be bemoaned, not as something to feel uh, sad about, but instead as something to celebrate the particular gifts of, to say like, hey, here's, here's the world that I live in. Here is the life I have been given by God. Now, what is the way in which I have a chance to treat this as a distinctive kind of gift, as something worthy of celebration, even if some of the people who look at my life from the outside would not inherently say that I have been given opportunities to celebrate. And I think for me, that, that Pustik story serves as a kind of reminder that there are gifts to be found in our lives, even in the unlikely parts of them. Your entire book of stories and No Longer Strangers has that kind of meaning, and you can find that kind of meaning in those stories. Maybe not in the chapter where, you know, someone coughs blood on you, but. Uh, <laughs> that was a, maybe a somewhat, a somewhat grosser story in some ways. Although even there, I, you know, there's, a, I think there's always an opportunity for us to think of things through the eyes of Jesus. Uh, and I think doing that causes us to 
to see the world differently than we might otherwise see it. Yes, very true. Um, Greg, also, I, I want to bring up the story also in this book um, about we're saying there's a white person and your sister mentioned, what did she say? Yeah, so I was out on public transportation with my sister. So in Indonesia, we had a public transportation system called Angkot, which is sort of like a bus system, but they're like minivan sized things and you just cram as many people in as you can. So we're sitting there in a crowded encoat, me and my sister, and out the window, I saw a white person. Now, there were not a lot of white people in Bandung, and most of the white people who I did see were people I already knew. So in the rare moments that I saw like a white stranger, I would be like, oh my goodness. So what I did is I'm out with my sister and I point out the window and I'm like, look, Laura, it's a bule. And bule is the an Indonesian word that literally means albino, but it's it's like the, the casual term for a white person. So I'm like, look, look, it's a white person. Um, and so my sister is like, Greg, don't point, it's rude. And then also while she's like shoving my hand down, she's like, also, you do realize that you're white, don't you? And I, and I stopped and thought about it and I was like, well, okay, yeah, I'm white. But I was like, but they're like white, white, like, they, they, they are something that I am not. I'm not clear exactly what it is, but somehow it's okay for me to point at them, even though I would feel really awkward if they were pointing at me. Um, so it is a, it's, it's, a, it's a memorable moment from my childhood in which my own sort of confusion about my uh, ethnic and racial identity rose to the surface. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that story. Um, I wanted to hear also, um, Coming back to the States when, when you were coming back for, for college or university, did you have some of those moments too of who am I? What do I look like? What do other people perceive me as? Or I think it, it was definitely a tricky thing moving back to the States and trying to get a grasp of what it meant to be a person with white skin in the United States because it meant such a different thing than it had meant when I was in Indonesia. Uh, in Indonesia, uh, to be white-skinned was to be a person of privilege uh, and yet part of the racial minority, like a very identifiable uh, kind of person of privilege. Uh, and when I moved back to the States, uh, suddenly the, the dynamic shifted such that to, to be white was still to be a person of privilege, but it was to be sort of part of the presumed majority. Certainly in, in the, uh, the school that I went to for undergrad, uh, I was definitely in the distinct racial majority. And so for the first time in my life, I discovered the beauty of blending in, of not having people see me and be like, oh, there's someone who is different from the rest of us. But a lot of people now looked at me and said like, oh, there's somebody who looks like part of the majority. Uh, and, and I realized that there was, there was a, a luxury in blending in, um, but it, it also came with a couple of different dangers. I think one of them was uh, the danger of no longer recognizing uh, the, the concerns of the minority group because I was so invested in like, oh, I'm finally part of the majority. Isn't this just so nice and tidy and easy? Um, that I that I it was easy to forget some of the responsibility that I now had as somebody in the privileged majority to think about like what can I do for my racial minority siblings uh, to help better their lives, 
and I think in addition to that societal danger, there was also the personal danger of uh, beginning to beginning to forget myself a little bit uh, because it was so easy to just pretend that I had always lived in America and people seemed to assume that I had always lived in America unless I told them otherwise. Uh, and, and so sometimes there was a temptation to, uh, to want so much to blend in that I was no longer no longer hanging on to parts of my distinctively TCK identity that were actually really important to me. Mm, that's that's complex. That's a lot to navigate as an eighteen-year-old, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. And and I don't think I navigated it all terribly well at any given point. Uh, but hopefully, by the grace of God, in the last however many years, 12 years, has it been that long since I've moved to America? Uh, hopefully in that time, I've at least gained some wisdom in the matter, though I, I think I still have a ways to go. For. Going back to Indonesia in 2011, 2012, what kind of lens did you look at your, your life in Indonesia when you went back? And also another question, did you play a poo stick game? <laughs> uh, Let's see. I don't remember offhand if I did play a poo sticks game. I'd like to think that we would have because it just seems I, I know I was doing a lot of nostalgic things. Like I was like, oh, there are certain foods I want to make sure to eat while I'm here. And, you know, there are certain places I want to visit. And I feel like poo sticks ought to have made it onto that list of nostalgic activities. But I cannot tell you with 100% certainty that we did, in fact, play a poo sticks game. I think as to my my sort of broader experience of going back and, and visiting Indonesia, I think it was helpful for me to solidify in my mind uh, the sense of value that I had in the season of my life where I grew up in Indonesia, even as I was coming to grips with the fact that at least for the foreseeable future, this was not going to continue to be part of my life. This wasn't going to continue to be the place that I called home. And I think there's something, there's something beautiful and important, I think, about being able to grieve, uh, grieve the loss of something that has been really beautiful and that we have really loved. Um, and yet at the same time to say, just because it's beautiful and just because we loved it doesn't mean it's the place we're called to stay forever. Um, Life is, I think, fittingly made up of seasons that change over the course of time. Um, and sometimes the best thing we can do with our previous seasons is uh, reflect back on them with fondness without always needing to then say, oh, I wish I were still there. Oh, I'm sad that I'm now somewhere else. Um, to instead say like, no, like I rejoice in the beauty of what was and I also rejoice in the beauty of what is. Um, it's a little bit like, I don't know if any of you listen to Taylor Swift, um, but uh, uh, in, in one of her uh, recent pandemic albums, um, she has a song called Happiness that has the line, uh, there'll be happiness after you, but there was happiness because of you. And I mean, granted, in the, in the Taylor Swift context, like it's kind of like a breakup song, but I feel that way about places sometimes. And even people, not that I'm talking about people I've broken up with necessarily, although my one ex-girlfriend was amazing. Um, but, uh, but just the general, the general sense that like we can, we can move past something, we can say farewell to something 
and yet say like, yeah, like there will be further happiness. And yet I can still look back and say like, there was happiness then too. Um, so I think Taylor Swift gets many things right in her music writing and that I would claim as one of them um, that we can remember the past with fondness even as we move beyond it. Greg, you're preaching to my soul. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And um, so Greg, yes, we've covered We've covered so much, <laughs> a lot of your different seasons. I'm wondering where you're at now. What season are you in now? What's what's part of your story right now? Right now, I am in the midst of uh, yet another round of uncertainty. I feel like my, my life has been a string of uncertainties. Um, and so uh, at the moment, uh, I, I'm, I'm in another round of questioning uh, what are the what are the places and and people that I'll that I'll get to be near, be among, hang on to in the coming season? And what are the goodbyes that I might need to say um, upcoming? Um, I I still feel a bit of a sense of alienness in my life in certain ways, um, and I, and I love this season even as I grieve in this season too, or I sort of grieve in an anticipatory kind of way, grieve the losses that might be coming. Um, there's something, I mean, we, we were talking earlier about the, the beauty of seasons. I think there, there's something that is so delightful to me um, about a life that is lived um, with a sense that, that nowhere, nowhere that we land um, is, is totally meant to be permanent. None of our addresses are really permanent addresses until we get home to Jesus in glory. Um, and everything, everything before then is a place that we are just passing through. Um, there's, there's, there's a really beautiful um, part of Hebrews chapter 11, which is, which is this chapter that gets really famous because it talks about the faith of like all these great, these great heroes of the Old Testament. Um, and, and the author of Hebrews um, says this, this fascinating thing about these heroes of faith that they have just described. Um, uh, it says, uh, all these people were still living by faith when they died. Um, they didn't receive the things promised. Uh, they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, recognizing that they were strangers on the earth. And, and so I think there is fittingly, for those of us who follow Jesus, there's a sense in which uh, to live lives where we where we're always saying like I'm not sure how long I'll be here or I'm not sure how long I'll be in the next place I'm not sure where the pursuit of Jesus will take me next um, but the the secure thing is that the, the that the promises that are given to us will ultimately come to fruition even as we sort of journey uncertainly on the road there um, so the season I'm in right now is in many ways a season of uncertainty. Um, but I think that can still be a joyous and beautiful thing. Thank you for sharing authentically and for for sharing vulnerably about even the way you um, your worldview in terms of being a Christ follower and finding security in that in that path. And, it's my uh, delight. Thanks for having me. At the end of each episode, I do end with rapid fire questioning. I give you five open prompts and I'd like to, for you to fill in the blank. Are you ready? Bring it on. Culture is. Idiosyncrasies we agree on with a whole bunch of other people. <laughs> yes, I agree. Did you learn that in your PhD rhetoric? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. 
Okay, one thing everyone should pack in their suitcases. If they're not allergic to peanuts, then peanuts. Um, but as a, as a, as a catch-all for those who are allergic to peanuts, a book is always a great choice. One of my favorite movies or books is? So there's this movie called Source Code with Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, where he has to relive the last 10 minutes of his life before a train blows up over and over again. Um, and I just find it fascinating. And it's one of those movies that I can rewatch like every year or two and still be like equally moved and equally thought provoked and equally excited every single time. I'm curious, okay, this is a, a side note tangent. Um, I'm wondering since your first book has your face on it, has anybody you know, in your travels come up to you and say, are you Greg Holtz? You know, it, it has happened. I, I think probably the funniest time uh, I was in the Chicago airport um, and uh, somebody was like, oh, I actually just finished reading your book. I have a copy. Can you sign it for me? Um, so, so I got to sign somebody's book in the Chicago airport, which was really fun. But it doesn't happen a great deal. I wouldn't say that I'm such a famous person that, that the, you know, the randos are just coming up to me in my life. Um, but if you happen to be listening to this podcast and then you see me in public, you should say hi because it happens rarely enough that I'll think it's really awesome. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Home is? Where you keep your toothbrush. And story is? The logic we select to make sense of how our moments fit together. So poetic. <laughs> Well, Greg, thank you for sharing some of your stories with us. Thank you for writing two books with some of your stories. Um, I, I really, I admire you and respect you for what you do, what you stand for, what you say, and how you lead. Thanks. I appreciate that. And thanks for having me on. This, is, this has been a treat. Here's to future conversation. In listening back to this episode, again, I am struck with the beauty, the eloquence, the authenticity, and the energy of Greg's stories and the reasons why he shares what he does with us. I have nothing more to add. Simply, I leave you with two quotes. The first quote is a book from Greg's newest book. Again, the title is No Longer Strangers, Finding Belonging in a World of Alienation. Greg writes, belonging has never come easy to me. Growing up, there was my mutated national identity to deal with, my not quite American, not quite Indonesian soul, restless in both countries. Later, when I came out as a celibate gay Christian, I found I didn't fit into the church as easily as I used to. I've often wondered what it means to belong to others even when I can't manage to blend in with them. The way Jesus tells it, if we give up on belonging in order to follow him, we'll find ourselves belonging anyway. We might not belong the way other people do, with normal homes and normal families and normal ways of fitting in, but we'll belong in a way that's a hundred times better. We'll be fully in place because we know we are out of place. We'll belong like aliens. Maybe you're caught in the same tension as me wanting to fit somewhere even as you're permanently out of place. 
Maybe you feel like an alien. If so, let's be aliens together. And the second quote is from Winnie the Pooh. When Pooh saw what it was, he nearly fell down. He was so pleased. It was a special pencil case. There were pencils in it marked B for bear and pencils marked HB for helping bear and pencils marked BB for brave bear. There was a knife for sharpening the pencils and India rubber for rubbing out anything which you had spelt wrong and a ruler for ruling lines for the words to walk on. There were blue pencils and red pencils and green pencils for saying anything special in the blue and red and green. And all these lovely things were in little pockets of their own in a special case. And they were all for Pooh. Is that the end of the story? Asked Christopher Robin. That's the end of that one. There are others. Thank you for listening to A Culture Story today.